Good morning. I'd like to preach to you this morning on the gospel lesson. I would like to, but I will not. Because <laughs> I talked to Pastor Ben before he left, and he chose which lessons we would use this morning and encouraged me to talk on that section that we have from the book of Romans. That section you may have noticed that is about sin. Now, I don't know if Pastor Ben wanted someone to preach about sin while he was out of town, (laughs) or if he thought you all really needed to hear about sin, or if he thought I really needed to hear about sin, but we shall carry on with his wishes. But I don't get very far in the lesson today before I have to stop. Did you notice the very first word in our epistle today is therefore, And whenever you reach the word therefore and you're reading the lessons, I've said this before and I'll say it again, you need to stop and see what it's there for. Uh, Which reminds me of a story. I had a teacher in high school, uh, Auntie Marge Logan. She was both my English teacher and my social science teacher and she told us a story one time of, it was a hot day and she was out shopping with a friend, a day not unlike today and they needed a break from the heat, so they took shelter inside a movie theater that was showing old movies. And they weren't particularly picky about which movie they went into because they were really looking for air conditioning, so they went into a movie that was already in progress. And shortly after they sat down, there was a scene where a woman fell down the stairs and they thought it was funny and they laughed. And they realized that everyone else in the theater had tears streaming down their face. And they all turned to them and she said, looked at them like, you monsters, how can you laugh at this? Whereupon they left the theater. (laughs) And probably didn't think about that for some years, she said, until one night she was watching an old black and white movie on TV with tears in her eyes and the Kleenex box by her side and she got to a scene where a woman fell down a flight of stairs and she went, oh no. I now see why they reacted the way they did. The, the movie she was watching, you may have seen it, it's an old black and white film with Betty Davis called Dark Victory about a woman who's dying of a brain tumor. It is not, as you would suspect, a laugh riot. What we learn from this story is context is everything. And so let's look at the context here for that word, therefore. What does Paul mean when he says at the beginning of Romans six twelve therefore, and then he goes on to say these things. There's one thing that's very different about the letter to the Romans from all of the other letters that Paul writes to the churches. Does anybody know what's different about this letter? Anybody? Paul has never been to Rome. When Paul writes back to the Colossians or the Ephesians or to the Corinthians, sometimes he has spent as much as a year or two in that church, and then he's writing back to deal with some issue that has come up that has come to his attention. But he's had chance to be there for Sunday after Sunday, and they've heard what he has to say. But when he writes to the Romans, he's never been there. He's got some friends there, but he's never been to that church. And so fortunately for us, the letter to Romans, Paul takes 16 chapters and writes everything he understands about the gospel of Christ in one book. 
A to Z, Alpha to Omega. It's a great book in terms of developing a systematic understanding of the gospel of Christ. It was very form formational for me. We did a book study when I was in my junior year of high school at my home church on the book of Romans using a book that we probably have in our church library called The Normal Christian Life by the Chinese evangelist Watchman Nee. And it was formational for me in terms of understanding the Christian faith. So what Paul has done here in this book is he's talked a lot about sin. It is apparently fairly important in Paul's understanding of the gospel because it's 16 chapters. He doesn't just talk about it in chapter 6, but also in 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7. And as he's gotten to this place in the book, he's already established, here's some sins that the Gentiles are prone to. Here's some sins that the Jews are prone to. He's gotten to a point that we probably remember. I hope many of you remember the verses that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he gets there in chapter two or three. And then he moves on to talk about what God did for sin. Now, as Nee pointed out in his book, Paul talks about sin and he talks about sins, plural. Sin, that state of broken relationship between us and God, and then sins, those things that we do that come out of that broken relationship or that harm that relationship. And through the first five chapters, he's dealing with sin, and he gets to the point of, and the answer for our broken condition was Jesus dies on the cross. And that's how God dealt with that problem. But then he's still got two more chapters where he's talking about sins. And why do we keep doing the things that we're not supposed to do anymore? At the beginning part of this chapter, he says the same thing he says in the part that we read. Well, if we're saved by grace, if we're saved by what Jesus did, if we're saved by what his actions were and not by anything I did, should I just keep going on sinning so that grace might increase? No, he says, may it never be. And in that section he says, because in our baptism, we were baptized into the death of Christ on the cross so that we may rise with him into new life. That blessing we had this morning or that remembering of our, thanks, of our that thanksgiving about our baptism, was actually quoting from the first section here of Romans 6, that we were baptized into Jesus' death. And then he gets to the section we have today. So all of that is the word therefore. That's the first word of our lesson. So how are we doing on time? <laughs> <laughs> I may have to pick up the pace just a little bit here. In this particular section, he uses two analogies as he talks about sin. He uses the word instrument, and then he uses the word slavery. Let's deal with them in that order, because that's the, way, the order that he uses. When he says that you are an instrument of righteousness, he does not mean, if I look at the Greek, a musical instrument, although that sounds cool, uh, but he, he means instrument like a scientific instrument, a medical instrument, or a tool. That's what that word means. So what Paul says, is that you and I are a tool for righteousness. 
Let's break that down a bit. I've been thinking a lot about tools as I walk around the block giving this sermon over and over again to myself uh, this week. Uh, this is, by the way, just so you know, a one-mile sermon. That's if you're ex- anticipating the length. So when it says that we're a tool, how many of you have a toolbox? Okay. Anybody reach into your toolbox at least once this week? Okay. Why do you, that's more hands than I expected to see, okay. Why do you reach into a toolbox? Fix something. Fix something? Anything else? Build something. Oh, what was that? That's where they're kept. That's where they're kept. Okay. You've got a task you're trying to accomplish, and you're looking for the right tool, and that's where they're kept. Okay? Were you with me so far? Now, I want you to understand that what Paul is saying is in this larger project of righteousness, of making things right with God, making the world right with God, calling people to right relationship with God, right? That's the larger project that we're doing, like you'd have a larger project of building a house, but you don't use a single tool to build a house, right? You have different tasks within that, okay? Within that larger project, there is some task, at least one, for which Paul says, you and I are the appropriate tool, okay? There is some task within the larger project of bringing the world back to God for which you and I are the appropriate tool. Now, we serve a savior who was, when he was here on earth, a carpenter, right? We know that from Mark 6, verse three, for instance, is this not Jesus the carpenter, son of Mary, blah, blah, blah. And so I assume that Jesus knows a few things about tools. I assume when he built furniture, whatever he did as a carpenter, he didn't just try and do it all with a saw. Everybody with me? (laughs) Okay. Probably he had multiple different tools and would use different tools as needed for whatever task he was going to accomplish. So that led me to wonder what kind of tools, what kind of instruments we have in this room. What are the gifts that God has given you that enable you to be the right kind of tool for a given task. And I wonder if some of you are like a, like a C-clamp, I'm thinking carpentry tools here, that hold things together. Maybe some of you are, are like a crowbar, that you take things apart, and if you're you know, building a house, sometimes you have to take things apart and do it over again, right? You have to tear it down so that you can build back right. Maybe some of you are like a drill that's really good at pushing through things when resistance is tough. Maybe some of you are like a a tape measure, good with numbers and very useful for planning. Maybe you're a space heater that brings warmth to situations when it's cold or a fan that cools down things when they get overheated. I want you to think about what is the gifts that God has given you And what kind of task might he have in mind that he enabled you to do? But Paul tells us there's a problem. And the problem is 
Sometimes we're a tool in the hands of the master carpenter. And sometimes we are not. And that problem is sin. That sometimes because of our disobedience, we place ourselves in the hands of another who is not building up but tearing down. And think of that, that crowbar that I talked about. A crowbar is a very useful tool in the hands of the master carpenter. It helps fix things, helps redo things. In the hands of a vandal, it brings destruction. And so Paul says, when we think about sin, he says, I want you to think about whose hands you've put yourself in. Are you building up or are you tearing down? Because when we are disobedient, we put ourselves in the wrong hands. And we're not part of that larger project that God is trying to accomplish. And then he talks about slavery. Now, slavery is definitely a triggering word, as certainly within our society when you talk about slavery, but it wasn't in Paul's day. As Paul writes to the church of Rome, roughly, I looked it up, 30% of the people in Rome at any given time were slaves. And it wasn't like in the, the Old South in the US where there were slave churches and free churches, roughly 30% of the people in the church would be slaves. When Paul talks about us all belonging to Christ, he says, male and female, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, Christ is all and is in all. Which is a part of their normal everyday life, slavery. Paul talks about one slave in particular within his letters, the slave Onesimus, who is one of the co-workers of Paul, who is a runaway slave. If you go back to the ancient Spartans, you'd see seven to one slaves versus free people. So it's a common thing within the ancient world, this slavery. And so as he writes to the church and says, are you a slave to sin? They would understand what he's talking about. He would say, you give your freedom over. He says, whatever you are obedient to, you become a slave of. So he says, are you a slave to sin. Remember, he's already dealt with that Christ has died for us. He's writing to the church at this point in the gospel of Romans, or the letter to the Romans. He's not writing to people outside the church. He's already dealt with that Christ has died for our sins, but he's saying, do we still continue to sin? Why, having been made free, would we give ourselves back to slavery? And the church would understand what he means. When I take my, when I have no say over what I do because I've given myself an obedience to those things I should not do, that I become a slave to sin. That part I think is relatively easy for us to understand. I think the hardest part of this section is the next thing he says, which he says you should be a slave to obedience that leads to righteousness. And I don't know about you, but I'm not fond of somebody saying I should be a slave. Remember, we said that that's a triggering word, and I grew up in a society that says I'm free, and what we mean by free is usually I can do whatever I want. Is that what we often mean when we, as Americans, say freedom? Now, 
Sometimes we take it too far for sure. I can do whatever I want no matter the effects on anyone else. But we really have, an, I would say, an overemphasis on me and what I want. And the problem is, Paul would not declare that as freedom. I can do whatever I want because I am the most important person is almost the textbook definition of slavery to sin. It's what I want. It's me over anybody else. It's my desires, it's my appetites, it's my well-being. When we talk in the Gospels, in the epistles, about our freedom, we talk about putting other people ahead of us, putting God's will ahead of ours. We talk about love, which is not that kind of freedom. And so Paul says, we should be slaves to obedience that leads to righteousness. For the wages of sin are death. The path that you're on when we're in that path doesn't lead to the life we want. And so he calls us to be on this other path, this path where we are tools in the hands of the master carpenter with tasks appointed, projects to do, and a larger project of doing the will of God to bring the world to him. Amen.